I need to be snapped out of my rhythms, essentially. I need to be yanked out of that by, by somebody else's like magnetism or, or energy or electricity or, or static or whatever it is. Like, I, I, I need that, that additional spark that is not of me. And I think like making room for that, not only making room for that outside spark that sometimes results in, in what I think is, is healthy conflict, but like welcoming it, like welcoming that because it's an essential dialogue. I think like looking at, at relationship as an essential dialogue a back and forth and all of this. And if you're not willing to make room for these other, uh, another voice that is sometimes at odds with yours, then you're not having the dialogue. Hi, I'm brilliant. Your host for this show. I know that I'm incredibly blessed. As the son of self-made billionaires, I've seen the high price some people pay for success, and I've learned that money really can't buy happiness. But I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. I created this podcast and the School for Good Living to share what I've learned and to keep exploring the question, what does it mean to live a good life and how can we do it? Despite my privilege, I lived for decades in a pretty dark place. And I know that living is often a painful, difficult, and messy business. But I also know that it can be wonderful beyond imagination, and that it's a skill at which we can improve. That's why every episode is a conversation with an author who's an expert regarding spirituality, health, relationships, work, rest, and play, or money. I also ask my guests about their creative habits, routines, and mindsets, and what they've done to get their books written, published, and read. If you're ready to be, do, have, and give more, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Everybody has passion and curiosity about something. Not everyone carries it to the point of obsession. As my guest today, Matthew Gavin Frank does. I first learned about Matt's work when I came across his book, Preparing the Ghost, an essay concerning the giant squid and its first photographer. The story of a man who became obsessed with photographing the giant squid Back in the 1880s, he wanted to find it and photograph it. How do you do that? Well, Matt has written about how he did that. His latest book is Flight of the Diamond Smugglers, a tale of pigeons, obsession, and greed along coastal South Africa. I learned so much from this book that I don't think I ever would have known about diamonds, about Africa, about pigeons. I learned a bunch of new words. It's a fascinating story. And Matt includes in the book about his own grief. So it's uh, Matt is someone who teaches creative writing. He's a professor in the Masters of Fine Arts program at Northern Michigan University. His work has appeared widely in journals and magazines around the world. He's got a very interesting life experience, combination of travel and food and writing, and as I said, obsession. This conversation covers a lot of ground in a lot of different directions. It's definitely an exploration in my own creativity. I hope you find something here that inspires you, that intrigues you, that motivates you to put your own creative process to work, follow it through to conclusion, produce something that other people receive, engage with, whether or not it's quote unquote good, just to engage in the process and stay with it. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with my new friend, Matthew Gavin Frank. Matt, welcome to the School for Good Living. (laughs) Thanks, Brilliant. I'm so happy to be here. I'm glad you're here. Will you tell me, please, what's life about? Oh, goodness gracious. First of all, I feel uniquely um, (laughs) ill-equipped to to claim any singularity as far as that goes. Maybe it's about making a mess. Uh, 
And maybe it's about, I don't know, finding small ornaments suspended within that mess, both self-made and the external mess into which one is embedded in order to, I mean, you were mentioning centering earlier. I mean, in order to find that sense of center, that sense of peace, wherein one could push forward. I think, I think it's about hybridity. I think it's about um, embracing hybridity. I think it's about embracing plurality. Sometimes that gets messy. I think sometimes I, I need to just like laser focus on a bird, for instance, within all of that hybridity and plurality. And I think sometimes, I mean, for me, I mean, what keeps me going at least is the interaction between that singular focus on something that brings me joy within the chaos, I, like a bird, for instance, or I don't know, uh, a bag of dill pickle flavored potato chips. And in the interaction between these singular, small, very human joys and just kind of the larger, beautiful, occasionally not so beautiful, but oftentimes beautiful chaos and tapestry that exists beyond us. So I think it, it, there's like this interaction between the small and the large, the individual, and then everything that contextualizes the individual. That uh, it's, it's a messy answer um, to a very open-ended question, um, but I feel as if an answer that wasn't messy, at least for me, would seem disingenuous, as if I was claiming, claiming ownership of some sort of like singular answer, which I feel uniquely ill-equipped to do because... <laughs> I'm riding the wave sometimes, man. Yep, yep. <laughs> you and me both. No, thank, yeah. <laughs> thank you for that. And I'm always a bit suspicious of people who have a ready and concise answer, especially when it's the right one <laughs> to that yeah. question. So <laughs> right, no, right. that's great. Thank you for that. Okay. So I might edit this so the listener still hears the enlightening lightning round in the middle, as is often how we do this. But I figured... Maybe we'll leave it. At any rate, we'll jump to the light, enlightening lightning round now, which again is a, a series of brief questions on a variety of topics. You're welcome to answer as long as you want. My aim, for the most part, is to ask the question and stand aside. Okay, question number one. Please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a... Unlicked envelope. <laughs> okay, number two. Here I'm borrowing Peter Thiel's famous question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? That living in an extremely cold climate is healthier than living in an extremely warm climate, I'll say, for now. <laughs> so if I understand what you're saying, you do believe that living in a cold climate, you believe that, but many people do not, that living in a cold climate is healthier. I believe that living in a cold climate is healthier, yeah. Okay, this one I do want to, I want to explore a little bit more with you because I know there's probably some monastics and mystics in the Himalaya that would agree with that, I suspect. <laughs> but knowing you live on the edge of a great lake, what right. what's your come from? Why do you say this? I feel as if maybe because we're less equipped to survive naturally, I suppose, uh, just with, you know, our, our uniquely unfurry uh, bodies in an extremely cold climate. And so it's, it's kind of... Uh, we've had to become creative uh, in colder climates in ways that we necessarily, that maybe we haven't quite in climes that we are innately 
you know, were suited to. And so as far as like health goes, I feel as if, and I lived in Key West for a number of years. Um, I grew up in Chicago, but I lived in Key West. I also lived in Alaska for a number of years. And I just felt sometimes, um, at least for me, at least, uh, uh, and with a lot of folks uh, with whom I associated um, in these places too, I felt like it was easier to, to stagnate, both physically and mentally, perhaps, in a warmer climate. It was because it was easier to be there. Whereas if it, in a cooler climate, it's, it's harder um, oftentimes to be there. And so certain degrees of stagnation that are permitted in a warmer climate are not permitted in a cooler climate, strangely. And plus, it's just exhilarating. How, how does one engage? And there, there's this term that I, uh, there's this condition that I, I love. I think it, the term etymologically like goes back to like um, a, a, a native cultures in Greenland, but it's a condition called Pibloktok, and it's P-I-B-L-O-Q-T-O-Q. That's just fun to say. It is, Pibloktok, right? And, and so Pibloktok refers to the uncontrollable desire to tear off one's clothing and expose oneself to severe winter weather. Now, um, Pibloktok was often like, it often like, like dovetailed with like hysteria of the freeze or something where people, I mean, people died because it was uncontrollable. You know, they would tear off one's clothes. But if one has controlled Pibloktok, brilliant. Where if, uh, if one kind of like exposes the uniquely ill-equipped human body to those extremes and that extreme temperature for a short period of time, and then like runs inside and like, you know, huddles up and, and you know, goes over by the, the, the pellet stove and drinks a hot toddy and is, is all good. I, I feel as if like that exposure to that brief exposure to extremity and the availability of that in colder climates seems like refreshingly intoxicating and healthy. Um, it also it also essentially snaps oneself out of one's comfort zone, which both actually and metaphorically, I think is is a healthy thing to do here and there. And it's also good for creativity and writing and so on and so forth. Wow. I think that's true. I think that's true. At least I agree with it. And I know there's a legion of Wim Hof followers <laughs> who subscribe to this. And of course, he's teaching ancient wisdom as well. But uh, as you say this, I, I love that Piblock talk. I have a friend who reminded me because just before the pandemic, in almost a year ago, I think it was a year ago today, I was in, this is November when we're recording this 2020, we were in Iceland. It was my first visit. And I had the privilege of going, submerging in the water. And it was exactly what you're saying. I'm like, oh my gosh. It's pretty fabulous. Yeah, I was I was in Iceland. Um, it was my only time in Iceland. This was um, two and a half years ago now. And yeah, just like immersing yourself, like hiking out to those natural pools, right? And just immersing yourself into these geothermal pools. It's just, oh my goodness, loved it. <laughs> yeah, and this was on the, I was actually looking for the photo to see because my friend texted, here it is. This was on a, one of the black sand beaches. And somebody, of course, got a picture, which is why I can see it now. But here's me going into the ocean nice. where I went completely under. So the geothermal, are they warm? Because this was the cold. Yeah, the geothermal ones are warm. Yeah. Um, but my, my goodness, you look like some Norse god. Or <laughs> I know, look, I'm like ready for a fight. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> oh, it was, that was amazing. That was fun. Okay, so uh, thanks for allowing me that uh, digression. Uh, in the lightning lightning round, I'm going to bring us back and keep us going. 
This is so not lightning. I love it, but no, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's that, uh, what did you call it? A hybridity, maybe the paradox, right? Okay, showing up already. Okay, number three. If you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? Don't skip breakfast. I love it. Okay, number four. What book other than one of your own have you gifted or recommended most often? Well, I've, I've recommended so many books um, so often in various stages of my life, but right now I'm going to say Valeria Luiselli's book, Sidewalks. It's, uh, it's, an, it's an essay collection that kind of burrows into like the hidden anatomies uh, and meanings of world cities. She just won a MacArthur Genius Grant, um, and she is a, a, a genius. Um, she's um, absolutely wonderful. Her, her work is lyrical intellectual, spiritual. Um, she's just questing after uh, meaning in um, what most of us would dismiss as just like mundane, right? So like um, much of her work does, it engages what I love most in, in especially nonfiction writing. And that's taking like the seemingly mundane, the seemingly quotidian and scratching and scratching and scratching at it until like it's gooer, until it's gooey inner holiness or, or horror begins to leak out. Essentially like uh, taking something that we only mistook for simple and restoring it to like its innate complexity. And in doing so, she, she basically uh, uncovers the secrets um, lurking within uh, the quotidian ornaments and in this particular book, cities and settings that most of us don't look as long and as hard at. And the book is very instructive for me. It's, it was beautiful. I read it on an airplane too. And, and reading that book back when I was comfortable flying on an airplane, and hopefully I will again soon as I, I adore traveling, just reading that book when above the earth, uh, when kind of like floating in, in that sort of like liminal space, neither here nor there. And the book itself just kind of engages even like terrestrial life as liminal, as neither here nor there. It's, uh, and our time here is liminal. It was just an amazing context in, in which to read the book. And it inspired like, it inspired a lot of thoughts in me. And so I, I actually do a lot of writing brilliant on, it sounds so horribly unromantic, but on like barf bags uh, in the in the seat pockets. And so I just like pulled that out and that book just inspired me to just write to, or at least take take notes that I would return to later. That's amazing. So just over your left shoulder, I see what might be a corkboard full of notes or inspiration. What is this? Is this, are these barf bags? What are they? <laughs> well, it's, um, they're, yeah, goodness gracious. I don't even know what's on there right now, but there are little scraps uh, of, um, yeah, of notes, addresses, uh, still an analog calendar, old receipts that for some reason I decided to keep because, I, I don't know, I have an emotional attachment to some laundry soap I bought in, you know, a town in South Africa or something. Yeah. So when I'm writing, too, I mean, it, it, it's funny uh, with like all of this like ephemera uh, back there. I never have a proper notebook and I'm always chastised if I'm interviewing folks for a book. They're always giving me problems. Like, why don't you get a proper notebook? Why don't you have a, I'm scribbling everything down on the back of just like scraps of paper, like nap, like cocktail napkins, old like gas station receipts, and just like collecting those into a big folder and then going through them later and, and piecing, you know, something coherent out of the scraps. 
So yeah, yeah, you are seeing correctly. <laughs> no, I, I really love that. And I think I'll come back to this in the writing section because I realize there, although there probably are best practices, so to speak, when it comes to writing, as we know, it's a very individual pursuit. And what works for one person, they might use a notebook, they might use something digital, they might write on the back of a receipt. <laughs> That's fun to see. Okay. Speaking of travel, question number five is you've traveled so much in your life. What's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? This is, again, like something that probably isn't physical. Well, I could mention maybe a physical thing, and then I'm going to mention just an attitude um, that sure. I force myself to. Goodness gracious, and it feels so corny because I think this showed up in that Wes Anderson movie, Darjeeling Limited. I think oh, Owen yeah. Wilson said it to his brothers when they were traveling through India, and he, and he said, Prom promise me one thing say yes to everything. <laughs> and so like, and I feel as if that concisely, and I think about that line sometimes, and I feel as if that, that concisely um, expressed what I, I felt in a much more diffuse and nuanced way as a traveler, you know, ever since I, I began traveling like years and years and years ago. And that's just like a willingness to be naked, a willingness to be open and affirmative and, and to just drop your defenses, a willingness to snap yourself out of your comfort zone and almost be almost to disappear and let the, the place uh, just kind of work on you and work its magic um, and its newness on you. Um, and just, just kind of be open to that without being too assertive, without trying to, certainly without trying to like over-direct, but without really trying to direct at all. So I, I like to make myself small and disappear while also being affirmative and allowing myself to, yeah, just to, otherwise, you know, I, I, I would just say, I mean, bring along some good rain gear so you could, you know, get outside, even if it's raining. You know, I, I never like to be, you know, like rain gear and an umbrella or, or just something like that, because I'm, I'm an outdoor cat, uh, brilliant, not an indoor cat. And so, um, I feel as if decent rain gear is, is, you know, always, always helpful. Otherwise it's the standard stuff. I tend to pack light. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense based on what I know of your travels, the rain gear, uh, maybe a Coleman Cimarron. <laughs> <laughs> you wrote about that, did you? So <laughs> yeah. Tell, tell me about that while we're on this about travel. Cause this is, some people think about travel and they think about nice hotels. Some people think about travel and it's probably closer to Jack Kerouac. Right. <laughs> I don't know. Like I, as I'm, I, like I haven't aged out of uh, tent camping yet, at least. Um, so I've always loved sleeping. Um, I've always loved uh, uh, tent camping, and the Coleman Cimarron is a downright um, luxurious tent compared to many of the tents that I've slept in in my life. Uh, when I was living in Alaska, I remember I, I was uh, tent camping in Denali National Park, right before, uh, uh, right in front of Mount McKinley, as far in as you could get um with the buses there and that's well wonder lake and i was camping at wonder lake and uh, in front of denali the mountain or mount mckinley as is, is, is you know it's as it's known and, and it was so cold brilliant i remember um but I, I i wanted to be outside i wanted to be in it and so uh and i wanted to be that close to the mountain and i remember and this was i think late october early november and then the park uh just kind of like shut down at least I mean, folks could still go in there, I suppose, but you have to be more intrepid than than I uh, in order to trudge through, you know, the snow in Denali, you know, with without a trail to, you know, it all to guide you. 
But I remember waking up in the middle of the night to, you know, go to the bathroom. And I, I, the, the tent canvas had frozen to the side of my face. And I remember I just kind of like peeling it off my face and watching these little miniature like uh, uh, snowflakes fall. And I step outside and the Northern Lights, uh, the Aurora Borealis was just out in full force arcing over Mount McKinley and reflecting off of its surface. And so the mountain itself was glowing uh, uh, pink and purple and green in turns. And I was close enough to it where even if I turned my back on the mountain, it was so large that I could still see it in my periphery on both sides. It was just looming. And, And so... I, I feel as if that experience was beholden to the tent. I could talk so much more about tent camping because when I first met my wife, we we basically like went around and, and lived uh, out of that tent um, and out of the back of an old Ford Windstar minivan for, for a while before we got married and things um, and just kind of drove around the country and camped. I don't know if you want me to go on about that now, or we could talk about that later. Or I have so many questions about, about how you've managed to maintain a relationship of marriage, you know, with somebody <laughs> when you lived in such close quarters in what I imagine must have been at least at times un- very uncomfortable circumstances. And and I understand your wife is from South Africa and you've traveled there in some pretty remote places as well. So maybe you can just give us a thumbnail about how you've managed to, you know, to travel together. And And I know, you know, we haven't talked before today, but I would imagine if you're still together, <laughs> that's a that's a meaningful and, and enjoyable relationship for you. Like, how have you done that? I don't know. I, I think it's, it's you know, beyond us in a way. Like, what did Kurt Vonnegut call us, you know, the human being? He called us big rubbery test tubes seething with chemicals. And I feel as if, I don't know, maybe our, our chemicals collide and, and, and intermingle well. It's, it's ever bewildering to me, uh, quite frankly, brilliant, like based on, you know, my relationships with people before I met her. It's, it's bewildering and I'm ever bewildered by it. And I think maybe part of why it's successful is, is that I'm open to being bewildered by it and that it's, it's, it's mystifying to me and I'm open to being mystified by it rather than saying, uh, you know, here are the bullet points to our successful relation. I feel like that would be reductive. It's as simple as we like each other and it's as mystifying as goodness gracious, who knows? I yeah. mean, who, like who knows? You guys lived together after you married in a tent on the side of a road into, into Taos. Is that right? Yeah. For weeks, yeah. like weeks or maybe months. Yeah, you've you've you found out a lot. I love this. Yeah, so we both met. Um, we met in Key West. She, uh, you know, was uh, working in a, a restaurant in Key West. Um, she, you know, had recently um, come here from South Africa. She's a really interesting person. Um, in South Africa, she was a broker consultant for a multinational corporation, and just detested it. It was just. Uh, I mean, just ruining her life. Essentially, she did not have the constitution for it. And and I'm just talking about her, and then I'll, I'll I'll get to Taos. Like I'll try and keep this short, but she she was on a lunch break by herself uh, one day in Johannesburg, South Africa, and you know this this had been building in her for a while. But she she pulled a sugar packet, right? I mean, out of the little sugar caddy to downturn some sugar into her coffee, and on the side of the sugar packet was was printed this 
this platitude. And it sounds so so silly in a way and so easy, but it just said like, live every day as if it were your last. And she just like <laughs> broke down. She was like, oh God. Uh, I mean, it was exactly what she needed to see at that particular moment, even though she dis- would normally just dismiss it as, oh, it's some, some platitude. It's so repetitious. And, you know, and she went back to work and quit. And, and her family just, you know, gave her so much grief about it. And she was always wanderlusty. And now, like, this enabled her to, to you know, travel, travel the world a bit. And eventually she, she landed in Key West after she had burned through her, her savings, took a job in a laundromat washing other people's clothes, and was, was never happier. And then she eventually got a restaurant job. We met in a Latin jazz bar at like three in the morning um, after our restaurant shifts and uh, just began a conversation that persisted, eventually bought that Ford Windstar minivan, ripped the back seats out of it, decided to uh, road trip um, the U.S. together. Just And this is like a really short version. We wound up uh, in Taos, New Mexico because we loved it and we thought it was beautiful and we'd never lived in the high desert before. And uh, we didn't have much money. So we had our Coleman Cimarron tent. It was a larger tent than the one that I slept in in Denali, which is why it felt luxurious. And so uh, we set up along the Taos Ski Valley Road where you could camp for free. And so there was just a really interesting collection of, of misfits and eccentrics and folks who just kind of detached from the grid who were living in that area too. And Met some folks we loved there and met some folks we loved a little less there, um, but it was an interesting collision of personalities. We bought this environmentally friendly soap and shampoo and um, basically bathed in the Hondo River, um, which was frigid because it was uh, um, it was fed. It was, it's the high desert. So Taos is at about 7,000 feet. And so it was snow fed. Um, the river was fed by snow melt. And so it was freezing. And maybe this is why I love cold weather too. Maybe because I associate it with early love. But I remember when uh, uh, we would immerse ourselves in that water to bathe with this environmentally friendly soap and shampoo. Once your heart dipped below the surface of the water, it was so arrestingly cold. You would just scream. You would cry out involuntarily. It would just be like, Uh, and it was just, yeah, so wonderful and refreshing and a great way to start the day. And and then we got restaurant jobs there too. And after our shifts, went back to the tent and read a little bit by lantern light. And the next morning, jumped into the Hondo River again. <laughs> That's beautiful. How long ago was it that you met in that jazz bar, that Latin bar in Key West? Yeah, we we actually, we met just about a month after 9-11. Um, yeah, so it was, yeah, mid, it was actually mid-October uh, 2000, 2001. Okay, so this brings us coming right back. the The next question of the enlightening lightning round here is about relationships, which is what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work, as if it could be distilled to just one thing. <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah. You know, in a weird way, I, I I feel as if I mean some of it has to do with some of my philosophy when I travel too. Because you are, when you're traveling, you're interacting intimately um, because you're there in that particular space um, with a space that is not necessarily like your own, not necessarily something that you, you know, should dare claim ownership of, right? And or ever presume to. And so um, I feel as if it's similar in a, in a relationship, you know, 
there is this space and then there is the space of, of, of my partner. And it's, it's um, just engaging the affirmative as much as possible. Um, just like making room for Louisa being as Louisa as Louisa can be and embracing that and loving that, even if it doesn't necessarily always, always mesh with, with my rhythms, because I'm, I'm the sort of person where if, if I need to be snapped out of my rhythms, essentially. I need to be yanked out of that by, by somebody else's like magnetism or, or energy or electricity or, or static or whatever it is. Like I, I, I need that, that additional spark that is not of me. And I think like making room for the, not only making room for that outside spark that sometimes results in, in what I think is, is healthy conflict, but like welcoming it, like welcoming that because it's an essential dialogue. I think like looking at, at relationship as an essential dialogue, a back and forth and all of this. And if you're not willing to make room for these other, uh, another voice that is sometimes at odds with yours, then you're not having the dialogue. Then you're, you're just kind of talking to yourself. And what kind of human experience is that? I don't know. Maybe that works for some. It didn't and doesn't for me. I'm not that into myself in that way. <laughs> uh, so. No, thank you. Thank you for that answer. So much comes up for me there. But I just want to acknowledge uh, for what it's worth. I think what you said about you know, giving space to Louisa, to your wife, is really beautiful. A teacher of mine once described love. He said, love is granting another this space to be all the ways they are and all the ways they are not. <laughs> and it sounds in what you're saying, you know. I love that. Clear, clearly this, this teacher um, had a penchant for concision more than I do. <laughs> I, love, I love that, though. I love that. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, I love that. Well, I don't think he said it in that. The flow of conversation. I think he had a, the benefit of an editor. <laughs> so <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. Okay. What's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? I stopped working in restaurant kitchens, but I've continued cooking. So I feel as if this is so interesting because I, and I think about this with writing too. Sometimes I feel as if like turning an innate passion and parlaying that into a career and engaging that occupationally is not necessarily good for the passion itself and the products you know derived therefrom whether it's a book if you're a writer or whether it's a dish if you're a cook and so i feel as if you if and, and i'm always wondering i'm not sure if this is true for me or not but I, I i think about it i interrogate this like i mean the fact that i'm writing now in part as as a career is that good for my writing so like, I mean, when, when passion like kind of bumps up against commerce uh, in a way, however small or however much you want to minimize that commerce, and, the, and you even said talking about marketing and stuff like that, it's interesting when, you know, that kind of like creeps into the act of art making um, sometimes. And so like, I mean, folk, there are folks who say like, work at something you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And I'm not sure if I entirely agree with that because there are side effects to turning that passion, I think, into work, um, into something that like it, it beholden to a paycheck, right? And so like, I find that interesting. It, it, it just like, uh, it imposes a new parameter on the passion, um, whether, whether, I mean, whether one likes it or not, maybe there are certain folks who are better at separating those things than I am and it's okay. Um, and I think I'm still figuring it out. I'm always journeying, but 
leaving the restaurant kitchen, I think, because I started hating cooking. And I love cooking. I love food. But I started hating uh, doing it under these very, very militaristic conditions of the fine dining restaurant kitchen, wherein I was sometimes working 19 hour shifts. Wow. It was yeah, it was it was really bad. In Key West, uh, too, like you would you would step into the restaurant kitchen and um, Key West was a culture that, I, I mean, just not only in the restaurant kitchen, but just, I mean, it was a party culture. I mean, it was a culture that would just go, go, go. And we were asked in the restaurant, in the fine dining restaurant world, they're oftentimes to work 19 hour shifts. And so you would step in there and there would be like a molehill of cocaine on one end of the line. And chefs on the line would just like, I mean, in order to just keep going and remain on their feet and working at that fast pace, would just like, leave their station, do a quick bump and jump back on. And it was, and so, so physically it was just an unhealthy place to be like an incredibly unhealthy place to be. And so I needed to get out of it. And the way in which I I found a way out of it was, was interesting, but we could talk about that later just so I don't over answer, over answer the question. (laughs) Thank you for that. All right. I think the last, last two questions in the lightning light you're around. Number one, uh, the last of the two is, what is one thing you wish every American knew? How important both travel and exposure to diverse voices in art. Not only, I mean, when you're traveling, you are, you know, by default, if you're open to things, exposed to, you know, diverse voices, diver- diverse cultures, cultures and voices that are not your own and that are unfamiliar to you. You find that in microcosm, of course, in books, in movies, in music, in museums uh, and things, and you find it in art. So I, I, I think, you know, I think the important thing that I think like a, a, a lot, I, I wish every American knew was how important it is to expose oneself to those diverse voices in myriad ways, in a library, in a local library, even if 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 one doesn't have the ability to travel, to be open to that, uh, in order to generate empathetic tendencies, in in order to be open to these diverse voices and and and, and ways of living, because. Uh, we're seeing a divisiveness, I think. I mean, you brought up America specifically. We're seeing a divisiveness in this country now that 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 seems aggressive and 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 oftentimes violent and toxic. And and I I, I think exposure to art in those ways would would kind of alleviate that in a bit, for you know, a bit. And I think it would it might take um, a couple of generations of of that sort of thing. But I think like art activism in small, traditionally underserved communities in the U.S., you know, could certainly help out with that. Um, and I, I do think it would take time, but I think it, it could help out with that. And where folks are not just inundated with the mores of their own backyard, so to speak. But yeah, so I, so I, wish, I wish for that, I suppose, um, to occur here. <laughs> I love that. We've obliterated the lightning concept, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm enjoying it. I hope you are. So I, 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 know, I, I, I just want to, I want to respond to what you're saying by sharing a response that someone I've interviewed made to, to not this question, but he, he was someone who ended up, he, he shot a woman when he was 13 in Florida and ended up spending almost 30 years in prison, 26 years in prison, 18 years in solitary confinement. It was amazing. And he's a spoken word poet. He's, he's just got a book deal. And, and when I asked him at the end of the interview, I said, how can we, how can we as America avoid this kind of thing happening to, you know, to 13 year olds, to people who don't, you know, who live in underserved areas, things like this. 
and he said art. And I, it totally was not like, oh, social justice programs and, you know, change the criminal justice system and stuff. It was like, no, it was art. <laughs> like, whoa, it's yeah. really interesting. It's interesting because art doesn't, you know, exist in a vacuum, right? I mean, um, like a communal experience of art, I think, can, uh, you know, trickle into other arenas of the community, like social justice programs, right? And, yeah. uh, uh, you know, and, and, and like, yeah, prison reform or whatever, like, I think one will affect the other, like. Art doesn't exist in a vacuum, and that's the beautiful thing about it. Like art starts the conversation and and affects other arenas. It's that it's that beautiful ripple effect. So yeah, yeah. And I forget who said it, but they described art as a life acceleration device. Ooh, and this right. idea that if art is essentially sharing experience, now we can understand someone else's experience or perspective without having had to have lived it. I mean, if, granted, we might not get it as fully or or whatever, but that. It's really a paradigm shift to think of it that way instead of what we tend to do, you know, watching or interacting, you know, consuming content or interacting with people that look like us who are safe, you know, that kind of right. thing. And even though it might not be direct stimuli, as you're talking about as living it, as being in it, like indirect stimuli is better than no stimuli at all. And the wonderful thing about like the exposure to to art is you are getting direct exposure to the inner workings of somebody else's brain in a way you are i mean how intimate is that i mean you are you are basically getting the world or a ver you know or, or an aspect of the world filtered through a very particular and very twitchy writerly or painterly or musical brain um so not only are you getting the thing itself so if, if, if somebody's writing about south africa you are getting maybe an indirect exposure to aspects of South Africa, but you are also getting direct exposure to that very twitchy writerly brain that filters it and um, just kind of like girdles it toward artistic flourish on the page. So it's actually like an incredibly intimate and direct experience with another human being and indirect experience with that larger sea of, of, of stimuli too, which is, which is great. So it, I think it works on you both ways. I, I agree. Amazing. Okay. And the last question here is, it's about money. We've talked about, about just about all the big things in life aside from death, but this one is what have you, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money or what's something you're always sure to do with it or you never do with it? Yeah. I'm always sure to devote it to experience rather than material. And, you know, uh, my, my family was, was always, you know, the opposite. They're like, oh, if you devote it to this beautiful meal or this travel, you know. It's gone. You'll have nothing, right? Yeah, you'll have yeah. nothing afterwards. And, and I'm like, you're, you're so wrong. I'll have my <laughs> life. Yeah. Um, I'll have experience. I'll, I'll have my heart changed forever, perhaps, um, you know, um, rather than, you know, I don't know, you know, a second refrigerator. Um, so... Uh, yes, I will keep fewer things cold, but I'll have a, a, a richer life, I think. So having having not grow, grown up, you know, in a, a wealthy family, I had my, you know, I started working when I was 11 years old. I, uh, you know, my first engagement with, with regard to making money was I was 11 years old and I was washing dishes in a fast food chicken shack on the outskirts of Chicago. And, you know, then just kind of stayed in, in restaurants for a while. But I, I always, I always felt that, and now it's a different time because of the pandemic. I, I do think, I mean, particularly like 
if if I was that age now, I, I, I wonder how I would figure things out because I, I wouldn't always have restaurants to fall back on in order to make money during a pandemic. <laughs> um, but uh, I always prized experience over money and I always just like burned through it. I would work for a little while, like money, like money and job was always a means to an end for me. Um, like the amassing of money was, it felt like a very unsatisfying end unto itself. But, but like uh, amassing it and, and, and then just blowing it on a big trip somewhere that I, of course, I couldn't afford, you know, and then going back and working again. And, and there are other folks in my family who socked away a lot more money and, you know, still have more money, but they, they haven't had these experiences. And they, they would always ask me, like, how did you do that on, when you were making nothing? And the author, Andre Dubas, the wonderful short story writer, I remember wrote, and I, I read this, I think, when I was like 17 years old or, or, or something, and it made an impact on me back then. And it was, money is an easily solvable problem. If you're willing to, and for me, what that meant is if you're willing to do anything, anything for uh, a job, you can just kind of do all of these other things that you love to do as well. So I, I never cared about occupation. I never cared what it was that I did. What I cared about is, is what I could use that for in, in order to satisfy other hungers, I suppose. Wow. I really love that. And the fact that you just did it. And I love that saying too. I haven't heard that, that money is an easily solvable problem. It, it brings to mind something a friend of mine once pointed out to me. He said, his saying was, money can't solve money problems, which we could, it's interesting. But the point he made was he paid off an employee's car. He paid off her loan. She came to work the next week with new debt, pointing out it was a mentality underneath the way she was, right? So interesting about money is an easily solvable problem. And perhaps money can't solve money problems. So now that's awesome. Okay. At this point in the conversation, I want to make sure to tell you that I have made a hundred dollar micro loan on your behalf as a way of saying thank you to sharing your experience and your insight with me and everyone listening. I've done it through Kiva.org. This is to a woman entrepreneur in Timor-Leste named Laura. She's 26 years old. She has three children. She farms, she grows and sells vegetables. So oh, that's awesome. Cool. Yeah. So thanks for giving me a reason to to go make that. Yeah, well, thanks for doing that. That's that's fabulous. All right. With that, then let's transition our conversation. How are you doing, by the way? Yeah, how does one answer that question in a socially <laughs> functional way these days without being completely disingenuous? Right? <laughs> yeah, serious. I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm, okay. I'm fine. How how are you? I'm good. I'm feeling when I, you're a very different guest from many of my guests in that you're, the topics you write about are so diverse, you know, and that's why as we transition to, and it's interesting to me that the flight of the diamond, the flight of the diamond smugglers is, you've got it all done, but it's not till February that you're releasing it, right? So maybe I'm feeling a little scattered, even though I've read your book and obviously done some prep for this interview, but I want to be sure it's valuable you know, for you as well, which is why maybe, maybe what we do next, I know we're running short on, on that 90 minutes that I said we'd keep this to, but what, here's what I propose. If we talk about what is the thread, if there is one behind all your writing, right. And then maybe, and then specifically talking about the diamond smugglers, cause that's the current thing. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And then go to writing and creativity and then we'll wrap up. 
Sure. I mean, I mean, the thread behind all of my writing is so like I see the writing process and this might sound moony, but like I see the writing process is kind of like walking through a meadow, let's say. And as you're walking through this meadow, you see kind of on the horizon, this thing that you're questing after this, this, this particular bit of subject matter that you want to directly engage this, this truth that you're after this secret behind say diamond smuggling pigeons uh, or this secret behind say from the preparing the ghost book, what, what were the behind the scenes goings on that fueled the first ever photograph taken of the giant squid in 1873 St. John's Newfoundland by, by some depressive reverend in, in the mad feast book. Um, what are the secrets behind why we eat, what we eat, where we eat it? What's the history there? And so I, I, I think as I see that kind of on the horizon, as I'm walking through this meadow, I find, so to speak, during the writing process, that I'm picking up all of these ancillary burrs on my pant cuffs as I'm walking toward that thing that I, I only believe I'm questing after. And these ancillary burrs kind of manifest in the book as like these ancillary bits of subject matter that have to be reckoned with and have to kind of draw a chalk outline around the main subject. And so I, I, I try and like call up process-wise the imaginative alchemy, I think necessary to associate these seemingly ancillary bits of subject matter with that main thread, okay? And it's, Oftentimes a fool's errand, but this is the writing process, right? I'm trying to find something out. Um, I want to test the parameters of meaning to see what something means. And sometimes these seemingly uh, dissimilar bits of subject matter are necessary to engage in order to see how I can try to connect that main bit of subject matter to, to these seemingly dissimilar things. What's the perfect bridge ingredient? What am I going to find out? It's like chemistry. Sometimes, like, what am I going to find out when I mix this with this? Is there is there going to be a, an explosion? Is there going to be cohesion? Um, is there going to be collision? Is there going to be aversion? I don't know um, until I try it. But each thing teaches me about the parameters of that other thing and what that other thing can take, so to speak. So I think that kind of curiosity um, animates all, all of my books. Uh, that kind of like, I, I always encourage young writers, like never lose the capacity to be surprised. The presumption of certainty in a book is, is always less interesting than questing after certainty, so to speak. Um, because the presumption of certainty means or signals to the reader that the journey is over and there's no more room for surprise. And if there's no more surprise, uh, room for surprise for the writer, typically there's not going to be a whole lot of surprises for the reader. And so the presumption of certainty always feels false. So I think like my, my books are always kind of resisting certainty in that way and just kind of um, pursuing questioning. So I guess that's craft-wise, I guess, a thread that kind of connects all of them. And we could talk about each of the books more more specifically in their specific minutiae. So it's not also abstract too, if you like. But. Thank you for sharing that. And, and what you're saying about never losing the capacity to be surprised. You know, there's no surprise to me that that's a, you know, a philosophy or a dictum that you live and write by. Because as I read your recent book, Flight of the Diamond Smugglers, the whole thing about Mr. Lester is this guy real? <laughs> Are you really going to meet him? What's it going to mean if you do? You know, this. Let's turn the conversation to this book and why you decided to write it. I mean, I suppose the question is is valid for any of your books. Why do you, I mean, I imagine these things take at least a couple years to research and write. What is it in your recent book? Tell us, Fly the Diamond Smugglers, 
a tale of pigeons, obsession, and greed along coastal South Africa. Why did you devote a big chunk of your life to writing this book? Yeah, I'm 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 easily obsessed. So I come from I, I come from a long line of folks who occasionally suffer from crippling OCD. And I've kind of channeled mine into art making. I am naturally, and it's it's, it's innate for me, um, I'm naturally obsessed with certain things. Um, and I have a difficult time, brilliant, like letting them go. But when I do, um, if when I move from one book to the next, I force myself to kind of squeegee my brain clean of that previous obsession and move on to the, the next thing. So... You know, I was obsessed with the giant squid and the first ever photograph taken of it in the book, Preparing the Ghost. I had a squeegee that clean when I moved on to the Mad Feast where I was interrogating like the meaning behind the ways in which we eat in America. And then after that, I had a squeegee my brain clean for Flight of the Diamond Smugglers after. So I, I mentioned that my wife is, is, she was born and raised in Johannesburg, South Africa. And we, we had endured um, a number of losses. We were, um, we were trying to conceive a child for, for a number of years, and it just wasn't working out for us. We had a lot of bad luck and, and suffered through what ended up being half a dozen miscarriages, um, a couple of them very, very late. And we were just wrecked. We were just destroyed. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, just like grieving terribly. And so, so my wife felt like, and it, it, yeah, I, I mean, the, the last few were here in Michigan, the last couple were here in Michigan, and we, we, she just kept saying, I need to go home. I need to go to South Africa. I need to be around my family. I need to be in, in my, my home country, even though she, she kind of claims a homelessness now as a, as a almost like spiritual condition because she doesn't feel at home in, in South Africa necessarily either. But she needed to go back there and we went back there. And when she was a child, her, her family would vacation. And this seems like a, an odd place to take a vacation, but they would go to Kimberley, South Africa, where there was just kind of like a, a museum uh, built to service what is known as the Big Hole, which was an underground and above-ground open-cast diamond mine that was active in South Africa, you know, in the, in the 1800s up, up through the, you know, early 1900s. And it became a vacation spot, strangely. Um, this old so, mine. Like, so random. I know this giant hole in the ground. I mean, so it's it's kind of like see, it's almost like the Devil's Tower of South Africa now, right? So all of these like kitschy little shops have opened up around it, and so Louisa needed that comfort at the end of this this period of having endured these losses, and so we conducted a weird funeral ceremony of sorts for our final miscarriage at the big hole in Kimberley, South Africa, and so I became really interested just being there as given my personality in the big hole itself, the site of our kind of like saying goodbye to our desire and our expectations of being parents, right? And so like, it became just an incredibly charged place because of that. That was the actual physical site at which we just kind of gave up who we thought we were going to be um, for the rest of our lives. And so I wanted to find out everything I could about it because I wanted to see how that big hole um, and everything I could find out about it could in some way contextualize my grief, it being the site where I gave all of this up, right? I mean, th this is just how I started thinking. And so I, I started learning about, you know, the history of, of diamond mining in South Africa. I thereby learned about the Diamond Coast of South Africa, 
which is like the northwest coast of South Africa, um, where it bumps up against um, Namibia to the north. And it was a previously closed off coast because De Beers, the conglomerate, owned all of it. And so these were company towns uh, along the, the coast where they did a lot of mining. And De Beers closed it off to all outsiders for a number of years. And so only recently, as De Beers began withdrawing some of their interests there, did a couple of these previously forbidden towns for the very first time open their doors to the public. And of course, in doing this research, um, I love as a writer and as a curious person worming my way into forbidden territory. I trespass, you know, and get a lot of joy out of it, so, so to speak. And so I, I, I felt like I needed to go there. There's these previously cloistered towns to see how people interacted with, with an outsider to learn about um, the diamond mining culture there and so on. And I, I ended up meeting a guy there at a bar called Diamond Hunters, of all places, in Port Nalith, South Africa. And he had a couple of drinks and he was a former diamond diver, which meant he would like vacuum diamonds up from the seabed um, offshore there. And he started telling me, um, and, and I found this very strange, like this was a previously closed off town and I thought people would be wary of an outsider, but it was almost the exact opposite. People were almost over eager to talk to me, um, to tell me what about their lives, what they, what they had seen, what they had done to confess certain things uh, to, to an outsider uh, in a way that they couldn't confess to somebody who lived in that, that cloister with them. And so this guy actually told me that he was involved in diamond smuggling. And he was like, basically, everybody here is involved in diamond smuggling. It's just, it's an unofficial part of the economy here from, you know, high up De Beers officials um, to, to folks like me, who were just like, you know, was basically a, a, a janitor for the seafloor. And he started talking about all of these ingenious methods employed um, uh, to smuggle diamonds one of them being um, that uh, diamond miners would sometimes sneak carrier pigeons, you know, in their lunch pails onto mine property. And uh, because of um, human rights laws, you can't x-ray somebody every day when they enter mine property and when they leave. Um, so folks are sometimes, um, so you're x-rayed about 50% of the time and the other 50% of the time you do step into an x-ray chamber, but you're given a placebo. So you never know if you're really being x-rayed uh, or not. Um, so folks would just risk it and bring carrier pigeons in, in their lunch bins and affix diamonds to their feet. And these were highly trained carrier pigeons. They would set them into the air where they would fly home to, uh, their families, um, and they would untie their diamonds and and make quiet fortunes and things. It was really, really fascinating. And and so, of course, as a curious person, as this guy's telling me this in the bar, I'm scribbling everything furiously down on the back of gas station receipts, right? And, and I'm, I'm thinking, oh, there's got to be a magazine piece in this or, or something. But being the obsessive that I am, I, I tumbled down the rabbit hole and talked to more people and more people. I went back to South Africa, like I'm four separate times to research this book. And it actually, you mentioned a couple of years, but this this book has been in the making for, for a little over half a decade. Uh, and so, yeah, just tumbled down the rabbit hole, 
Eventually, like the book blew up to like 1,200 pages, which was just untenable, of course. And so a lot of the work was just cutting down that 1,200 pages to a reasonable 200. <laughs> uh, but there's so much wound up on the cutting room floor. But but what's there, I think, is a, a, a wonderful distillation of, of this story and the story of these folks and the story of these pigeons. Yeah. And your story, as you mentioned, you know, starting with this, with this grief and this curiosity. And that was something that, that I really appreciated, you know, your, some writing, you know, consciously removes the, the writer and yours was very personable. And I, I felt uh, grateful for the opportunity to travel along with you <laughs> while here at home. I'm so, so glad. Thanks. It's about considering yourself a writer. I understand that for many years you had some resistance to calling or thinking of yourself as a writer. Tell me about why that is and how you've overcome that if you have. <laughs> I'm always wary of, of over-identifying as something. Um, and maybe I'm, I'm self-deprecating in that way. Like I, I feel as if I'm a lot of things. Uh, <laughs> and I feel like writing is one of the only things I'm good at. So maybe then I could call myself a writer. I, I, I feel like I'm really only only good. I feel like I'm a decent cook, but I feel like I'm really good only at like a couple of things. And and writing is one of them. And walking, strangely, is the other. I think I'm a really good walker. So uh, like I, I just love moving through space in that way. And I, I feel like I could do it over various terrains. I don't know. <laughs> that might be a weird thing to say. But I guess I was... I never wanted to sound too self-aggrandizing when it came to it. Like I never wanted to sound like have like these delusions of grandeur, like, oh, I'm some lofty writer, because maybe I associated that with, oh, I I I, I could be dogmatic in, in a way about like uh revealing my w- version of the world to other people as as a gift. Here you go. Uh you're welcome. Uh but and, and so that that, that that's kind of not me. I feel as if I write not necessarily to dominate a conversation. And I know I'm talking a lot here today, but that's also because of this construct, right? But I um, I mean, not to dominate a conversation, but to but to be part of it. And so like you, the previous question that you scrapped is like, um, what do I hope for this book? Is that I, I, I hope it starts a, wa- a wide reaching conversation. I hope people pick it up. I hope, I hope a bunch of people from various walks of life, like read the book, um, maybe folks who have endured losses themselves and who are enduring grief. I mean, maybe derive some solace from this book in, in that I feel in that what, what this book taught me and what I, I hope it might show other people is that our grief, however intense, is also beautifully, beautifully small. Um, and part of this larger tapestry, um, just because it's small doesn't mean it's not holy or something, but, but it's, it sometimes feels that like it's all consuming and it dominates everything. And, and we're the only folks experiencing this because we're feeling so intensely. But one of the, the most amazing things and, and, and one of the common denominators that we share as human beings is the endurance of grief. We all engage it. And, and it makes that beautiful in a way too, because it unites us. However horrific it is in, in individual ways and, and even on larger ways, like conceptually, it's, it's beautiful that it can be a uniting factor in that way. And what this book helped me do is it helped find, it helped me realize that my grief is small, that it's not all encompassing, that my story of loss can exist on its own. And, and I wanted to find out what would happen if I embedded my 
my grief into this larger context, into this larger engagement of pigeons and diamond smuggling and all of this. And how could that engagement and my obsession therewith help to contextualize my grief and make it more manageable? What could it teach me about my own grief and the ways in which I grieve and things? And so I feel as if at least formally speaking, the way the book is constructed, I I would hope that it would offer perhaps other people who have endured loss that kind of solace and maybe even inspire subsequent journeys, curious journeys in order to contextualize grief. Like a, a wonderful salve to grief is, I guess for me, it comes naturally, but obsessing with a story that seemingly has nothing to do with your grief while enduring that grief also. And then allowing those things to strangely commingle and have one redirect and one recontextualize the other, uh, so to speak. Yeah. That's a very interesting way to think of it because as I, as I hear what you're saying, I wonder if that might if one might engage in a pursuit to do that as an escape or a distraction, or if, you know, there's a way in the way I understand that you've done it, been able to basically integrate, you know, or process your grief through the pursuit and the inquiry, you know, what do you, what do you think? It's so funny like, um, like that you make that distinction. I've, I feel like oftentimes a lot of artists uh, and a lot of, you know, um, in order to, in order to art make, I, I, I think, Maybe this happens innately, or maybe people, or artists, sometimes have to force it, um, which is okay. I think that's okay. Um, they oftentimes look longer and harder at a particular thing, maybe even a simply a seemingly mundane or, or, or quotidian thing, than than the average person. So long after many folks have looked away and moved on to the next thing, um, maybe the writer is still with it and still asking questions about it, and so. You talk about like distraction and escape. Um, and I think uh, something like that began this way. And I think if I abandoned the inquiry at a certain point, it would have remained that way. A lovely distraction and escape that, that helped me for a little while, but uh, you know, then, then stopped. But I think the longer I st- stood with it, I, it, it evolved beyond mere distraction and escape, simply because I stuck with it for as long as I, I did. And so I think distraction and escape just kind of morphed into something else. It's kind of like, I don't know, all of a sudden I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of those like paper hoops that football players sometimes like run through when they're charging onto the field. And I think I finally um, got to the end of distraction and escape and, and broke through some sort of like paper hoop, hoop into some new space where this kind of pursuit and these lines of inquiry became something else, something beyond distraction and escape, because it actually doubled back on itself and made me examine my own grief harder rather than, you know, being distracted from it. It was, it was, the, it was the exact opposite. It made me fixate on it, but in a different way and through a different lens, basically to see what my grief was made of. Uh, what it could take without breaking, how how profound was it? How diffuse was it? You know, what did it mean? Uh, and, and, and so, yeah, it, it almost, well, maybe it blurred my grief initially. Once I got through that paper hoop, it tightened the focus on it and it enlivened it and made it brighter and sharper and forced me to telescope in. 
a bit. It's almost like adjusting the tracking on the old VCR VHS tapes. It, it just like, it ended up taking away some of that, that static. Wow. You know, I have a, another teacher who once said, what's on the side of any feeling fully felt is peace. And I don't know if that was your experience by, you know, looking, engaging this inquiry so intensely for so long, but if you found that that did somehow you, not just that it did, but you transmuted your feelings of grief or loss into something, you know, that's like peace. I don't know what to call it. Maybe something like it. For In order to get to real peace for me, because I'm a naturally restless person, I... I, I think I have a few more paper hoops to get through. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There is, there is no end. I think to this progression, this life we're in. Uh, certainly a physical end, but I want to share this with you too. I learned so much. It's part of what I enjoyed about about this book. I had imagined when I saw it that it was very old, like the the one you know preparing the ghost. It was like maybe 100, almost 150 years old. And then I, when I realized that, no, pigeons are used to smuggle diamonds, like even now. And so many other things about the diamond industry, about 46%, you mentioned this in the book, that 46% of diamond miners are between the ages of five and 16. It's like, holy cow, how many carrots are harvested a year? Like just, it's almost hard to even imagine, 176 million carrots a year which would be 77,603 pounds of diamonds produced in a single year. Yep, that the corporation maintains a stronghold on in order to fictionalize uh, a narrative of, of rarity and thereby, you know, fictionalize value. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, incredible. And and that the diggers make the equivalent of about 20 cents a carat. Yeah. For yeah. something that we sell for like 6 to 30 grand a carat. Yeah. That that's amazing. The things, all the stuff you shared about pigeons, which was fascinating. I felt a little bit like I was watching Mister Rogers. You know, the fascination <laughs> when I'm a kid about pigeons being able to fly 2,600 miles on the caloric equivalent of a single Cheeto. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, in order to figure that out, I, I had to do a lot of a lot of math. Um, <laughs> And so, and, and so that's true. Yeah, they are, they're amazing. Their anatomy is amazing. Their intelligence is, is amazing. There have been so many studies, and of course we could never know this, because um, uh, as, as the author W.G. Sebald once said, humans and non-human animals engage each other or admire each other, something like that. I'm going to butcher the quote. Engage or admire each other across a beautiful gulf of mutual misunderstanding. <laughs> I love that we're still conducting studies to see like, um, where the aim is to find out if pigeons have the capacity for love. To see how pigeons, of course, express pain. Um, we, we still look at that. But um, pigeons, like crows, have the ability to um, differentiate between uh, two different people based on um, facial recognition. They're known to like recognize faces, and they're known to recognize the faces of past abusers, which makes you think about all of these, you know, uh, like uh, uh, atrocious experiments, perhaps. But yeah, pigeons have been known to recognize the, the faces of past abusers. Pigeons have been known to recognize all 26 letters of the English alphabet. Yeah, um, pigeons have been known to exhibit 
a, a condition that we previously thought was was uh, uh, limited to human beings, and that is superstitiousness. How? How? Like how? What do we see that makes us know that? It was B.F. Skinner, uh, actually, the behavioral psychologist who conducted tests on on pigeons, and there would be um, he would withhold food. He would essentially starve pigeons, and the pigeons eventually learned that if they behaved in a certain way for B.F. Skinner, it would yield a feeding. So certain pigeons um, began to, to like, uh, I mean, Skinner called it superstition. Um, like, if, if I do this, I will get this. And that involved turning around three times fast in a circle to the right, and then turning around three times fast in a circle to the left. Will that yield a feeding? Um, and so engaging behavior that we typically, you know, uh, associate with OCD or neuroses or superstition, the pigeons began to, to exhibit that, that, that kind of behavior too. They're also fascinating creatures in that um, we've engaged them so variously in, in, you know, our mythologies across like time, history, and culture. Uh, the pigeon, and and there really, there's no actual biological difference between the dove and the carrier pigeon. The carrier, the, the, the pigeon. I had no idea about that. It was another thing that fascinated me. Right. Yeah. There, there is no difference. It's just a difference in naming, right? Um, and I know you're interested in naming, which is which is fascinating. Like, what's in a name, and what is what does a name mean? And and of course, I think many many writers would share your passion. But if we call something a dove. Well, then in our like religious uh, narratives, oftentimes we've recognized it as, as, as holy. And, and if you did damage to a dove, oh, goodness gracious, like in those in, in, our, in our mythologies and in, in religious doctrine, oftentimes that, that meant bad news. But the pigeon, we call that a rat with wings. Um, right. you know, what's in the name? And so and, and we just have no compunction about you know, deploying whole whole teams in cities to lay out toxic seed to kill what we call a pigeon infestation. But oh yeah, well even like the fact I mean, as you point out in the book, that live pigeon shooting was an official event at the 1900 Paris Olympics. Yeah, like yeah. can you imagine if somebody even proposed that we have a live pigeon shoot as part of the summer games? Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> like holy cow! Yeah, yeah, and it was seen as okay, and and in South Africa, um, still today. These unofficial militias that are enabled by by the diamond conglomerates, um, by De Beers, Transhex, Alex Cor, et alia, these unofficial militias are still kind of commissioned to go around and 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 round up because pigeons in the diamond coast of South Africa are seen as agents of the smuggling, and are are banned, and so people raise pigeons in secret. Um, it's very very secretive there. But these militias go on these um, clandestine runs um, at night, kidnapping people's pigeons from their coops and taking them out to diamond-restricted beaches and basically conducting unofficial uh, and somewhat like, like barbaric versions of the Olympic pigeon shoots of the, of the early 20th century. Yeah. Still happens then. It's amazing. So much that I learned about, again, about, about pigeons, about diamonds. And you cover, like you said, a lot of cultures, the Egyptians, you know, the, I think you talk about what the Greeks, you know, believed so much. What, what else did you learn in the process of writing this either about diamonds, about Africa, about birds, about yourself, anything that, uh, that really surprised you or has made a difference for you? 
Okay. Yeah. Well, one surprising fact, and then I'll talk about like the, you know, maybe something loftier, but like one surprising fact that I, 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 I that really blew me away was that in, in this one particular uh, coastal town um, in Alexander Bay, if, if the town council actually made it illegal, illegal to not shoot a pigeon on site, if you had the means to do so, or to just kill it, if you had the means to do so. I don't know if that means like if you were carrying a ballpoint pen, if you should just, uh, but like that was actually a law on the books. It was illegal to not kill a pigeon if you spotted one, should you have the means to do so. I don't, I don't, I, you know, people were very wishy-washy about uh, talking to me about the ways in which that was enforced, but, uh, but that was fascinating. Um, other smuggling means that I, I found incredibly fascinating um, was uh, folks would, and, and this was um, uh, during the height, it's still a problem, but this was during like the height of the AIDS scare in South Africa. Uh, folks would slash open their arms, their own arms on site. Um, there were plenty of sharp objects in a diamond mine. Um, they would slash open their own arms and shove a bunch of rough diamonds inside the wound. And then due to uh, AIDS scares and the bleeding, mine security would often rush that person to the hospital. And oftentimes the person, there was a person at the hospital who was in on the smuggling scam who would then retrieve the diamonds from the wound and give the person um, a small kickback um, who actually slashed themselves open. Um, other times they would sew up the diamonds into the wound there on site. And then when they were out of sight of other folks at the hospital, they would reopen it um, and uh, they would meet and reopen it and take the diamonds out together and, and do all of this. Folks would smuggle diamonds in the sockets behind their glass eyes. Folks would smuggle diamonds across the Namibia-South Africa border, packed into the diapers of their infants. So I guess the thing that surprised me about that in a, a loftier way is, is I, I was surprised at the nuanced levels of human ingenuity born of desperation and the sort of desperation that was birthed, so to speak, due to corporate rapaciousness. So corporate rapaciousness, uh, in a way, enabled a desperation. I mean, it, 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 I mean, essentially, I mean, a lot of folks compared the, the system on coastal South Africa to the, uh, the feudal system. There are the lords and the vassals, and the lord culture kind of elicits a desperation in the vassal culture if the vassal culture wants to persist and escape a, a, you know, a present slash horrific life condition. And so like the ingenuity born of that, of that induced desperation was ever fascinating to me. Uh, uh, it's horrifying. It's weirdly inspirational. Uh, and it just is a testament to human creativity when it comes to survival on various levels, however you want to look at survival. And, and, the, and, and, the, and that fascinated that fascinated uh, me as a, as an observer. Wow. Well, and especially too, and we haven't, I don't think we've touched on this, but about especially a little while ago, decades ago, and I'm sure even still today to some degree that the punishment for this, if people were caught, they'd be stabbed, they'd be shot, you know, they'd have digits chopped off. Like, like this was this common practice, right? Yeah. People just right on site shot through the head, things like that. 
uh, yeah, people, I mean, routinely, yeah, I mean, still today, yeah, um, people oftentimes just disappear um, if they're oftentimes even accused um, of smuggling. So yeah, uh, immediate execution, mutilation, in lesser, in lesser cases, just complete eviction from the only town that they they've ever uh, that they've ever known, and just kind of like thrown out into the gullet of the desert, and and things so like uh, completely forsaken. So in these towns, um, even if one have, has the means to do so, even if one has a quote unquote legal legal means to do so, folks are very reluctant about buying new things. If somebody shows up in one of these towns with a new car, for instance, the default is this person is smuggling diamonds, and then they will be kind of like fiercely investigated and intimidated in in various ways, sometimes physical ways. Yeah, mm. yeah that that was something I had never learned about, and including too um, what you shared about De Beers. Like I didn't know Rhodesia was named for John Rhodes. Uh, an entire country and and his relationship with, I forget the his sometimes competitor, sometimes lover, Barney Bernardo. Barney yeah. Bernardo thought that was whole interesting, <laughs> and the Oppenheimers, and so so much. This covers so much as we've discussed. I I do hope people uh, pick it up. I haven't learned a lot of new words, and it's been a while. I, I I don't I don't recall the word right now, but I didn't even know there was a word for the crossbar on a crucifix. Oh yeah, yeah. The uh, the um, the stipes and the patibulum. Uh, yeah, the patibulum. Like yeah, so. Yeah. Anyway, it's that was even uh, reading these. So, okay, I know we've covered so much, and I didn't leave us. Of course, we've talked about writing in this some. We didn't get into the to the nitty gritty of your routines and your habits and your advice for others or marketing. But I think just in the going ahead and wrapping up anyway, <laughs> I do want to just ask, I understand you now teach creative writing there in Michigan, right? So you're not only someone who has the authority to speak from having produced a number of, of books, but also someone who, who teaches this as well. I want to, so I just have two last questions. One of the first one is about how do you think it is that you are able, I would use the word prolific but I might just use the word productive. How is it that you are able to take your experience and your process and, and however you do it that you, and I guess the context for this question is that a lot of people want to do this. A lot of people wish, and it's kind of like someone once said, a lot of people want to have run a marathon. Not very many people want to run a marathon. <laughs> a lot of people want to have written a book. They don't actually want to write a book. What is it that you think makes you different either qualitatively or something you do that, results in books. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I could, I could only speak to my own journey on this because I have a bunch of writer friends who are like wonderfully prolific, who have engaged completely different journeys. You know, I mean, for me, travel um, early was essential. Um, like I felt like I needed to, as I meant, I, I talked long about, um, long ago about snapping myself out of my comfort zone and always being compelled to do that. And so travel was important for me to just get out of my own backyard and gather stories. Listen, see new things, smell new things, taste new things, talk to people, listen to people, get out there and gather stories, which maybe, I mean, you talked about running a marathon that involves training, of course. Maybe that was, maybe that's some kind of training for, for, for writing as far as that goes. I don't know. Like I'm, I'm training myself to be curious and surprised. It never occurred to me that way because that's just my personality. Um, that's just 
what I what I needed and you know and wanted to do. Um, although I have friends who have never left an academic cloister who are writing amazing things, you know, and that 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 journey worked for them. For me, I, I think I'm prolific because I, I don't know any other way to live. I do it because I can't not do it. And I do think there are, are, are other folks who have real talents at, I mean, somebody who, want, who wants to write. I think if you're naturally obsessive, that's great. I think if you're not, but you also want to write, I think one can manufacture obsession. How? By reading, I think. I think like the more one reads, like uh, the more one is exposed to things that can just kind of like drum something up by forcing yourself to stand in your backyard and watch birds uh, or something like stand in one place and just look and look and look and see some weird aspect about bird behavior that that you've never seen before. I'll tell you how I manufacture obsession. And this is going to sound totally boring, but it's but it's true. Like sometimes I feel like I have something in me that I want to dislodge onto the page, but I can't quite put words to it yet. And I don't know quite how to get it out. Um, And I feel as if I need some sort of like inspirational, I don't know, syrup of Ipecac, so to speak. And so what helps for me is I'll go to my bookshelf and I have, I have a bunch of these Autobahn guides. I have a bunch of Autobahn bird books and Autobahn fish books um, that are now put out by the Autobahn Society. And I'll, I'll pluck off the Autobahn bird book And I'll just thumb through it and I'll read about bird facts. And just eventually that will shake something loose for me, whether it's directly about birds or not. Um, Because there is something in there that I wouldn't have previously known that I will find fascinating. You talked about learning new words and things like that. I'm always hungry for new words, which is why I play block talk, right? And so... I always learn uh, like something about like uh, the parts of a feather. I'm really interested in diagrams and the way things are named, which is probably why I, I know what the parts of a, a crucifix are called. I'm interested in, in you know, what the parts of things are called. Um, like the thing together is the crucifix, but when you break it down into its parts, what do you call it? And so I love reading about feather parts in these Autobahn bird books. What are the parts of a feather called? How is that broken down? And I'm learning new words. And sometimes just even the sound of a word will excite me and make me want to like incorporate it into something. And, and so I guess that's how I would, I would manufacture obsession. There are nu- numerous ways to do it. Bird watching, going for a walk, looking through an Autobahn bird book uh, is, 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 I guess, how I do it. And it sounds silly, but it works for me. Yeah. If it, if, and that's, to me, one of the really beautiful, sometimes frustrating, sometimes deeply rewarding aspects of, I think, any creative pursuit is learning ourselves. What are our preferences? What are our styles? What works for us? What doesn't work for us? You know? So, no, that's awesome. I realize, too, that I do want to ask you this. So, I want to ask you about that story you wrote in fifth grade. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Because this seems to me this was a pretty pivotal moment for you as a writer. You were writing, you were sharing, yeah. you were collaborating. There was a, so. Will you give us the sketch on what this was? Of course, of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, before that, I uh, one one more piece of advice that a, a writer mentor shared with me a long time ago, and it was, uh, the poet Alberto Rios, and he said to me, "The whole trick with writing is staying in the room." Stay in the room. Stay, keep your butt in the chair, essentially. Stay in the room. So sit in front of the computer and start, you know, start writing or sit in front of your notebook and and start writing. And when you think you've gotten it all out, hang out in that room for another hour. 
stay with it for another hour and see what comes out because that's oftentimes when the magic happens. And a lot of writers say this, but I'll repeat this too. The muse shows up during the process, not beforehand. The muse shows up during the process, not beforehand. So in order for the muse to show up, you just have to sit down and start writing, no matter what it is. Just start getting anything out. Just start scribbling words on a page in order to generate something, in order to conjure the muse, in order to manufacture that inspiration, so to speak. So it started for me in fifth grade, like my inspiration with, you know, uh, my excitement about writing. Um, my mom was a school teacher. She was uh, a junior high school uh, English teacher, in fact, in, uh, in, uh, in inner city Chicago. And she would read to me just, you know, incessantly as a kid. And I was obsessed with books, I guess, because of that, maybe. And so then I was, I, I wanted to try my hand at, at writing also. And uh, I had a friend who was nerdy like me, and we decided to collaborate on this serial, a bunch of, a bunch of short stories and we were little boys, okay, so so forgive me, but like about a serial killer. Okay, like I was obsessed at that point with like the the Friday the thirteenth movies and Nightmare on Elm Street and all of that, all of that stuff, the the John Carter like Halloween and, and all of that. And so we wanted to try our hand at the at the serial killer uh, genre. And we started writing these stories called Death at Dark. And the second one was Death at Dark Two, then Death at Dark Three, then Death at Dark Four. And our, uh, we, we mentioned it in conversation with our fifth grade English teacher, Mrs. Buckheim. And she was so excited that two of her students were like, these two boys were writing extracurricularly. And, and that, she, that she, at the end of her classes, she allowed us to give readings of our Death at Dark series to the, to the class. And, and brilliant, we found that in order to keep our classmates' attention, in order to keep them wrapped and riveted, we had to ratchet up the gruesomeness of each subsequent installment. It couldn't be repetitious because they'd be like, been there, done that. So we really had to ratchet it up in, you know, with whatever our inflamed fifth grade minds could conjure. And so I remember, I think it was Death at Dark. It could have been 11 or 12. I don't know who remembers. But I remember the description. It was mine. And this... Serial killer forced the hand of his victim, this man, into a sink drain where there was a garbage disposal. And then he turned the garbage disposal uh, on and ground, up, ground the man's hand up. And the man pulled his hand out of the garbage disposal. And the description was, the blood ran like egg yolk. Strangely enough, and maybe I started thinking about pigeons early, the, the victim kept pigeons. And he, he withdrew his hand and the blood was dripping as it was, like egg yolk. I know it's silly, but... And then one of his pigeons had escaped and flew into the kitchen. And the serial killer then snatched the pigeon out of the air and stabbed the man in the chest with the bird. <laughs> and the bird asphyxiated in the man's chest cavity, its wings flapping madly as the blood was dripping and all of this. And... And in the story, the man and his pigeon die simultaneously, and then their spirits ascend from their respective bodies into the air like, like fire smoke, and then they twine like a, a DNA helix. And that was the description. That's how we ratcheted it up for Death at Dark 11. And the class's jaws just dropped. And 
Shannon Elliott, this this cheerleader on whom I, I just had a mad crush at the time, started crying at the description. And I found out later why, but like she started crying at the description. But to make a long, longer story short, Mrs. Buckheim called me and Ryan after class and she banned us from reading. She was she was mad. Like and she banned us from uh, reading any subsequent installments. Like we had crossed <laughs> the line. We, we violated some unspoken parameter and she was angry about it. And at first we were, we were almost in tears. Like we thought we were, I mean, we were getting in trouble for our work. We were getting in trouble for our art, which is really, uh, and, and then the more we thought about it, the more we were kind of oddly excited by it, that, not only did did our words have the power to make Shannon Elliott, um, goddess of Aptekisic Junior High School, cry, but it also gave the power, and also allowed us the power to get banned from reading in an English class. And so that power was just kind of oddly electric to our our young selves, and a little scary, but also a little addictive. And we kind of wanted to to do it again. So, and later on, I, I, I realized that, yes, um, good, a lot of good art makes trouble. A lot of good art doesn't aim to confirm a reader's expectations. It aims to agitate them. It aims to agitate readerly expectations, not confirm them. And so I think I realized that for the first time then in, in fifth grade, though I didn't have the words to put to it. <laughs> wow. Did your friend go on to become a writer as well, or what, what was his path? <laughs> So to speak, he's a lawyer now. <laughs> so, so he still uses words. We still we still talk. Wow. Um, yeah, we still talk. He's, he still uses words, but he's like a condominium attorney now. So he writes all of these treatises on mold and <laughs> bat guano. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Well, I've really enjoyed and appreciate this conversation. Um, I hope listeners have as well. The final question I have for you is just what advice or encouragement you would leave anybody listening with who is either at the beginning of, you know, they haven't started really with their creative project, or maybe they're in the middle of it and haven't managed to get it done just yet. What, what do you say to somebody who's in that situation? Definitely. I mean, it's a, it's, it's kind of platitudinous at this point to say like, stick with it, stay with it, but uh, don't prematurely abandon anything. Trust in your passion, trust in your obsessions, trust in your eye, trust in your voice, and trust in your work. Your life and everything that, you know, all of this experience that you've amassed up until this point, nobody else has. Not in this way. And then even if they've amassed similar experience, nobody greets it or processes it in the same way that you do, and then filters it in the same way that you do, and then puts it down on the page in the same way that that you do and that you will. You have, everybody has something to say in that way. It just takes patience, practice of craft, um, so on and so forth, you know? But, uh, and sometimes that feels like a very, I always talk about writing being like a, a conversation and fostering that essential dialogue, but sometimes it can feel like a very isolated, lonely pursuit. But know that there are communities out there of like-minded folks. I didn't know that when I was working in restaurant kitchens. You know, I would go out with folks after a long shift and have a couple of drinks to unwind before bed. And sometimes we would say, hey, what do you like doing in your spare time when you're not cooking? And I would say, yeah, I like writing poems. And it was a fabulous conversation killer. (laughs) 
But there are other communities out there that I found um, of like-minded folks who love talking about that sort of thing. So seeking out those communities and finding that kind of that kind of balance, finding a way to foster that essential dialogue, whether it's in a writing group or an MFA program, or I mean, just like a community, a community writing group is what I mean, or a book club. There are, uh, and eventually with with editors and agents and publishers and things, the essential dialogue has to begin somewhere. And I'm always telling young writers too, don't be discouraged by uh, rejection to the point where you stop making things. Making things, creating things, making things is incredibly important. It basically, if you're making things, you're, you're building a levy against a lot of other atrociousness. However inadequate and fragile that levy may seem sometimes, it's important putting art out into the world, making things, making that positive contribution. And so don't be discouraged by rejection um, letters when you submit things and and things. Be discouraged, but not to the point of stopping, because rejection is part of that essential dialogue. If you are not being rejected, that means you're not part of the conversation. If you are being rejected early on, it means at least you're part of the conversation. And you will collect rejection, as most writers have done, myself included. You'll collect them, and you'll collect them, and you'll collect them until finally, you're playing the odds here, somebody will accept your work for publication. I mean, it, it just, it'll, it'll happen. But if you never start that conversation, and if you're not willing to be rejected and, and greet that as part of the essential dialogue... It's tough to develop these these relationships with editors and and like-minded folks. So yeah, no, I I love that, and I think it was in Stephen King's memoir on writing where he yeah, talks about right. having the railroad spike with all the rejection letters punched yeah. through it above his writing desk. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a common practice for writers. They keep it in their office. They paper the walls with their rejection letters and things. And I love King's meditation on writing. He's 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 a he's a brilliant man. Um, yeah, so, yeah. And two, I love what you're saying about not to the point of stopping. Like, be discouraged, but not to the point of stopping creating things. And and I don't know if if you see this this way as well, but I I often think of I think it was Steinbeck, who ended up moving to Hollywood after having been a novelist yeah, and yeah. tried his hand at screenwriting, but never made it in screenwriting and died feeling like he was a failure. But anybody today would say he was an amazing success. So that disconnect between our own judgment of our success. Yeah. yeah. Right. That, that happened with Faulkner too. Like Faulkner went out to Hollywood and contributed to, I think Faulkner was a co-writer on that Bogart movie, the big sleep. Oh yeah. I didn't know but, that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but but Faulkner there was just small potatoes and, you know, but hey, The Sound and the Fury. Yeah, <laughs> pretty yeah. amazing. Yeah. If people, if they want to know more about you, or they want to connect with you, what would you have them do? The first thing I would say is check out my books. Um, like if you want to connect with Mimi, check out the books. I mean, if you want to connect with me, like, I mean, just directly for... For something, I mean, um, I'm contactable through through my website, um, which is just matthewgfrank.com. Cool. This has been great, and your work is inspiring. I really appreciate the chance to connect. I've enjoyed getting to know you. I don't know when or where exactly we'll, we'll connect again, but I know we will, and I will look forward to that day. Me too, brilliant. Yeah, I, I, I hope we cross uh, paths again um, one way or another, and I, I appreciate the conversation. I, I really enjoyed it. 
Yeah. And next time you're in Utah, which whenever it is, I know it's secretly the center of the universe. And I did mean to tell you, I loved what you wrote in the in the Mad Feast about funeral potatoes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, I have a story about that, but that's a, yeah. <laughs> for another time. Yeah, I definitely want to hear it. So next time we talk, maybe. But next time you're here out this way in the West, please let me know. And next time I'm out there, we'll see. I know we're both somewhat vagabonds. The pandemic's changed that a little bit for just about everybody, but. That sounds great. And hopefully one day we'll get to break bread over the same table. That would be. Yeah, that would be I would love that. That'd yeah. be really fun. Cheers. Thank you so much. Thank you. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at briamiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com. 